Just out of curiosity this morning, uh, by show of hands, how many people have ever heard of a man by the name of Howard Winters? Howard Winters. Karen has, and some people back there, Julian Smitty. Uh, Howard Winters is uh, a really interesting story. Howard Winters was a preacher for the Pentecostal church many, many years ago, and um, he came in contact with someone who uh, started talk to him, talking to him about the Bible, and uh, Howard, of course, uh, thought he knew the Bible pretty well. He was uh, well-versed in, in studying the Bible, but this guy pointed some out some things to him and got him to thinking, and he started doing some more of his own studying. And as he continued to study, and as I said, he was a man that really wanted to learn the Scriptures, um, he came to the conclusion that even though for many years he had been preaching for the Pentecostal church, uh, he made the decision that he was not a Christian, and most importantly, uh, he was not a New Testament Christian. And so he made the decision that he needed to change a lot of things, and he knew that he could no longer be a preacher in the Pentecostal church, and he knew that he needed to be baptized for the remission of his sins. He believed he was saved because he was baptized what he thought by the Holy Spirit, but he understood that the one baptism that's talked about in Ephesians chapter 4 is by being baptized for the remission of your sins, and so uh, he became a New Testament Christian. Well, in doing so, there were some things that he knew he was going to have to give up. First of all, he was going to have to go against his family because his family, of course, was very entrenched in the Pentecostal church. But the biggest problem that he had was that he was a preacher for a congregation of people that were a part of that Pentecostal movement. So he had a decision to make, and his decision was he wasn't going to quit his job, but instead he went back to that church, climbed in the pulpit, and began to preach the unadulterated Old Jerusalem gospel, and the most surprising thing happened. He converted his entire church. His entire church became members of the Lord's church, and that congregation is still there, even though Howard Winters has been dead for some time. Uh, he eventually converted his brother Clayton, who also became a gospel preacher, and he was able to also convert other members of his family. Uh, but that's just an amazing story. Here is a man uh, that in order to become uh, a New Testament Christian, he first of all had to give up some preconceived notions. He had to go against family heritage. He had to uh, go against something that he believed that was right, but now he had to admit that he was wrong. Uh, he had to make some major changes in his life and had to quit being a certain kind of person and start being another kind of person. There may even be some in the congregation today that are now Christians, but as far as your family is concerned, as far as your family tradition, as far as religion is concerned, uh, it may go back many, many years, but you made the decision it was more important to become a Christian and go to heaven than it was to hold on to tradition or to family or anything else that might keep you from being a Christian. In the religious world that we live in today, it's highly unusual for someone who has been a part of a denomination for many years to leave that denomination and become just simply a New Testament Christian. We live in a world today where most people think that one church is good as another and therefore they really don't pay a whole lot of attention whether or not they are in a church that abides by the Scriptures. 
a church that has authority from Jesus Christ, and therefore uh, they have no desire to make any kind of change. There's also others, as we've already briefly mentioned, that because of their family members, they would never leave the denomination that they're in. First of all, because they know they will cause some conflicts within their family, and most people do not like conflict, especially when it comes to religion, so they're not going to try to kick against that. They're going to go the easy path. There's also those who won't leave their family religion because of the fact they believe that it's passing some kind of judgment on someone who is a part of their family that perhaps has died and maybe does not understand the Bible the same way that they do. There's also others who will not leave their denomination, not make the needed change, just out of, uh, out of pride. Uh, they do not want to admit that they've been wrong. Sometimes they will have to admit they've been wrong for many years, but they don't want to do that. Uh, their, their foolish pride keeps them from doing what God wants them to do. Many years ago, a great gospel preacher by the name of Marshall Keeble was studying with a woman, and he was trying to uh, convince her that she needed to make a change, and, and uh, she told him, well, uh, Mr. Keeble, um, I don't believe that a person should jump from branch to branch. And Marshall Keeble responded, he says, well, I don't believe you should do that either unless the branch you're on is rotten. He was trying to convince her that there was no hope in staying on the branch that she was in. But there is a variety of reasons why people will not leave the situation that they are in and make the change that they need to do and simply be a New Testament Christian. Many years ago when I was preaching in Knoxville, Tennessee, there was a a man that lived right across the street from me. And I had the opportunity to talk to him about the Bible and had the opportunity uh, to point some things out in God's Word that he needed to hear, and he was very receptive to us to it. And he said, you know, Jim, I believe everything that you're saying, but I can't give up what I have in the church that I'm at right now. And I said, well, what do you mean you can't give it up? He says, you don't understand. If I, if I do what you say I need to do, I'm going to have to leave the fact that I am a soulless a person who sings solos, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right or not, in the chorus where I'm at, and I just can't give that up. That gives me so much uh, joy and so much pleasure, and I do not want to give that up even though I know what you're telling me is the truth. It's hard sometimes in the denominational world that we live in today uh, to make the change that we need to make. Well, this morning I want to talk to you about a man who gave up everything. A man who gave everything to be saved. And what I mean by that, I'm talking, of course, by the, about the Apostle Paul. And Roger's already read for us from Philippians chapter 3 and verses 4 through 7, where the Apostle Paul makes a long list of some things that he gave up in order to be a Christian. Now, in the context, he is talking about some things that he gave up when he knew that he could no longer depend upon the flesh and anything he might have gained in the flesh in order to be a Christian. In the context of the passage, he's dealing with Judaizing teachers, and he's trying to make the point that all these things that I was and all these things that I could be, as far as my own achievements, they got me nowhere. In fact, in verse 7 he says, I counted them all lost. And he goes on in the chapter and talks about he believes that all those things were dung. They were worthless. 
That's what he's talking about in the context, that only a person can be saved by the blood of Jesus Christ through his faith and trust in God, that God brings about the grace and the mercy that is needed for us to be saved. But there's also some things pointed out in the text that Paul gives, gives up, if you will, to become a Christian. As we go through the text today, you're going to notice that he gives up family things, he gives up church things, he even gives up some personal things, if you will, in order to make the change necessary to become just simply a New Testament Christian. Now, the conversion of, Paul, of Saul of Tarsus is familiar to most of us. Uh, he recounts this particular event in Acts chapter 9, in Acts chapter 22, in Acts chapter uh, 26. You remember how in Acts chapter 22 when Jesus appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus and Paul realized that he was wrong, that Jesus was indeed the Son of God. He asked Jesus in verse 10, Lord, what will you have me to do? In other words, what do I need to do in order to be saved? Well, the Lord told him that you'll go into the city and you'll be told what you need to do. And when he was in the city, a preacher by the name of Ananias came to Paul And he tells him in verse 16 what he needed to do. He says, And now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. And we know when the apostle Paul did this, he had his sins forgiven. We know he was then added to uh, the Lord's body. 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 12 and verse 13 tells us that by one spirit we are all baptized into one body. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 23 tells us that that body is the church. So Paul simply, when he responded to the words that Ananias told him, and he was baptized, he was baptized into the Lord's body, which is his church, which is the Lord's church, and he simply became a New Testament Christian. But today we want to think about the things that the Apostle Paul had to give up to make that decision. And that's our hope and prayer this morning, that if there's anybody here that is being held back because of some things they want to cling to, some things they want to hold on to, that they'll very seriously think about what's more important, hanging on to those things or giving those things up so that they can become just simply a New Testament Christian. So we invite you this morning to open up your Bibles, and I want to read for you once again what Roger has already read for us for emphasis' sake, and then we're going to make some, what I hope will be some points that will cause us to think. Beginning at verse 4, he says, Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he have whereof, he might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching righteousness, which is in in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. Now, as we think about this particular text, and we think about what Paul gave up, first of all, I want you to think about the fact that he gave up a long and distinguished family heritage. Look at, once again, verse 5, and notice what it says. It says, Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Now, once again, in the context, Paul is talking about how that if somebody was going to be saved 
by their works, by the flesh, if you will, then the Apostle Paul was going to be the one that could do that. And he's pointing out later in the text that none of that got him anywhere. It's all about faith in Jesus Christ. But the text also illustrates for us where Paul was before he became a Christian and what he had to give up, especially when it comes to a long and distinguished family heritage. Now, I've already mentioned that one of the reasons why people don't take advantage of the gospel of Jesus Christ and become just simply New Testament Christians is because of family. It may be because they feel like their family will disown them. Maybe because they feel it will cause trouble in the family. Maybe because of the fact that uh, saying something about a family member that they don't want to think about, that that family member may be lost and spending eternity in hell. But the Apostle Paul was a man who came from a long and distinguished family. The point that he is making here in verse 5 is that from the very time that he was a little baby, he began to keep the law through his family. His family took him on the eighth day as the law of Moses had prescribed and circumcised him, setting him up with a covenant family relationship with God. And then he goes on and makes the point that he was a true Israelite. He wasn't only from the, from, the, from the loins of Abraham, if you will, but he was actually from the right son of Abraham. And that is, he was the son of Isaac, who had the son by the name of Jacob, who became the father of the Israelite nation. But then he also points out how that he was of the tribe of Benjamin. And the point he's making there is, of all the twelve tribes, here was one of the two that stayed loyal to God and His covenant. You remember how after Solomon died, the kingdom was divided in two, and ten tribes of the north started following Jeroboam and the two tribes of the south. Benjamin and Judah remained loyal and stayed under the guidance of God, whereas the ten tribes above became steeped in idolatry and eventually were overrun by the Assyrians and ceased to be a part of the nation any longer. He's driving home the point that going back over 2,000 years, all the way back to Abraham, I have been a part of a long and distinguished family. He drives the point home even further when he says, I am a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Now, he's not just being redundant here and saying, I'm a Hebrew. I've already said I'm a Hebrew. I really am a Hebrew. That's not what he's saying. He is saying his family, in contrast to other families that lived in the day that he lived in, were still following all the Jewish customs, were still speaking in the Hebrew language, was doing everything that Jews did going all the way back to the time of Moses. They were living in a Hellenistic world now where the Greek culture was taking over and not many Jews were speaking just Hebrew anymore. They were either speaking Greek or Aramaic. In fact, when the Bible was written and we wanted to reach the most people, it was written in in Greek so the common man could understand it. Even Jesus Christ, when we read of His words in the New Testament, we have Him speaking in Aramaic, which is a mixture of Hebrew and other cultures around Him, especially the Syrian culture. But the idea that Paul is driving home here, and he wants us to understand, if there ever was a Jew... 
If there ever was a Hebrew, if there ever was someone who had a proud, long, distinguished family, it is me. But don't miss the point. He wants you to understand. I gave up every bit of that because being a Christian was more important than having a long and distinctive family heritage. It's interesting as you read all the writings of the Apostle Paul, as you read his history in the book of Acts, you don't hear him say or read anything that he says, anything about his family. Doesn't talk about his mom, doesn't talk about his dad, doesn't talk about whether he had any brothers or sisters, doesn't talk about his family life at all except for in this one passage right here. And that leads me to believe, and I don't know this without a doubt because the Scripture doesn't tell us, but I believe I can read between the lines and make the the assumption that when the Apostle Paul decided to become a Christian that he basically was disowned by his family. This family that had a proud heritage of being a Jew. This family who kept the customs even in the days of Paul. This family that was able to trace their lineage all the way back to Israel, all the way back to Abraham. And it's my personal assumption that when he made the decision to become a New Testament Christian and leave the religion of his family, that his family basically had nothing to do with him ever again. Many years ago... The church at Charlotte Avenue in Rock Hill had a very uh, vibrant campus ministry there at at, uh, Winthrop University. In fact, uh, my dear wife, Karen, was uh, was, um, uh, converted through that particular uh, ministry. But there were all other college students who were going to Winthrop University at the time who, through the Bible studies on campus and whatnot, became Christians. And Karen and I both know people who personally were disowned by their parents. Their parents wouldn't have anything to do with them anymore because of the fact they called home and said, listen, mom and dad, I have decided to become a Christian. I've been baptized for the forgiveness of my sins. And basically their parents said, well, son, there's no point in you coming home. The Apostle Paul did the same thing when he decided to become a Christian. He gave up a long and distinguished family heritage. I want you to notice something else he gave up. He gave up the largest denomination among the Jews. Notice what the text says. He says, as touching the law of Pharisee. Now, when we see the word Pharisee, the first thing that pops into our heads is hypocrite. Or maybe the first thing that pops into our head is, well, these people were enemies of Jesus. Well, obviously, as we read through the New Testament, we discover that Uh, Jesus had some things that were against the Pharisees. Mainly, they tried to make laws that they had no right in making and bind these laws upon people that they had no right to bind. They made laws that God did not make. And because of those traditions, they actually violated the law of God. And we should learn from that. We should never bind our opinion or what we think may be right, even if it's in the best interest of another person, if we don't have Bible to back it up. But the other thing that they did, and Jesus was critical of, was the fact that they would come up with all these rules for other people, but then they wouldn't observe the same rules themselves. And that's why they were called a generation of vipers. They were referred to as hypocrites. And so they did have those problems. But you got to understand, though, 
The reason why Paul uses the phrase he uses here as touching the law, a Pharisee, he wasn't being critical of himself, he was praising himself. The reason why he was praising himself, he was pointing out to his readers that he was a part of the largest and most prestigious denomination that the Jewish world had known. Now, we oftentimes don't think of the Jews being denominations, but they did have denominations. You could be a Jew, but at the same time, you could be a part of a different, being a different type of Jew. Uh, there were all kinds of different, what we call, might call sects or denominations among the Jews, but the two most famous ones that we read about in the New Testament are the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees was the largest denomination, if you will, and they were what we might call the conservative wing of Judaism. I dare say, knowing the mindset of most of us in this room today, that if we had to make a choice living in the time of Paul and we were going to be a part of a Jewish denomination, we probably would pick the Pharisees because they were the conservative bunch. Uh, They tried to stick to the law. They tried to, and they failed at this, they tried to be as spiritual as they could be, and they went overboard with that. But yet, they were the conservative wing. They were the largest wing, and they were people that uh, were considered to be people who were really close to God. When people knew you were a Pharisee, they assumed that you were a righteous, righteous person, and oftentimes people wanted to be like you. On the other side of the denominational world of the Judaism is the Sadducees. And we might call them the liberal group, if you will. Uh, They were so liberal, they didn't believe in um, angels. They didn't believe in miraculous things happening. Uh, They didn't even believe in the resurrection of the dead. And that's probably what made them sad, you see. But they were the other group that was in town. And Paul is making a contrast here. If you look at my religion, if you look at which church I was a part of, I was a part of the right church. I was a part of the conservative church. I was a part of the church where people were doing their best to follow the Bible. I was a part of the church where people were doing their best to live righteous, even going above and beyond what was required of us. The Apostle Paul was trying to make people realize, first of all, in the context If there ever was someone who was in the right place at the right time in the right church and could be saved by that, it would be me. But he's also pointing something else out to us. And that's simply this, that even though I was a Pharisee, even though I was a part of the largest denomination among the Jews, I gave every bit of that up to become a New Testament Christian. And once again, we're so wrapped up in denominationalism today that people don't give it another thought whether or not they're in the right church or not. But yet even sometimes when they're told the truth and they understand and appreciate that is indeed the truth, uh, they won't give up where they are just simply because they enjoy being a part of that large denomination, perhaps because of its a magnificent worship service with everything that's going on, maybe perhaps because of all the programs that they have to offer, maybe it's just simply because of the business contacts they have, maybe it's because of political reasons, maybe it's because they have such close friends. The Apostle Paul was a part of this great denomination known as Phariseeism. He had been taught at the feet of Camellia and been trained to be the very best Pharisee that he could be.
He invested time and money in this denomination. If he had stuck with it, he perhaps would have become the greatest leader that the Pharisee church had ever seen. But he says, I gave all that up because going to heaven was more important than being a part of the largest denomination among the Jews. But there's one final thing. And sometimes we don't even realize it when we look at the text, but there's something else that Paul had to give up. Notice the next thing. He had to give up his moral superiority. Notice what the text says. He says, as far as touching righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. Now, when you first read that, It seems like Paul is saying that he's perfect, but that's not what he's saying. He's saying that that word blameless means to point a finger at. He says, there's nobody that could point a finger at me and say, I'm not everything I need to be as far as keeping the law of Moses. I keep all the rituals, all the dietary laws. I keep all the feast days. I do all the sacrifices. Nobody can point a finger at me and say I'm lacking in that area. Now, once again, in the context, he's pointing out as far as the works of the flesh, here's a man that got it down. Here's a man who was doing the best he could to keep the law. And in context, he's saying that did me no good because without the blood of Jesus Christ and the grace of God, I can't be saved. But notice something else he's pointing out by saying these things. Something that we can use as a springboard. He's basically saying, I've got some moral authority here. If there's ever anybody that has any kind of moral authority, it's me. If there's anybody that I could stand before other people and say, listen, I can look down on you, and I'm superior to you. I have better morals than you do. There are people today who don't become New Testament Christians because uh, they believe in their minds that as long as they're a good person, then they don't need to be saved. There's also others that perhaps look at the church and they look at the individuals in the church and they see those individuals and they see their problems, they see their sins, they see the hang-ups that they have, they see the places in which they're not everything they need to be and they're not consistent and they look at those people and say, well, I'm so much better than anybody in that church. Why in the world do I need to be a part of that church? I'm doing pretty good without them. I don't need them. But the Apostle Paul understood that even with his moral superiority, if you will, that he too was just a sinner among sinners. And that without Jesus Christ, he was going to be lost regardless of how good he was and that he really had no moral superiority at all. In fact, he came to the conclusion in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15. He says, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. He understood that no matter how good he was or how much better he might have been than somebody else, that because of his sins, even though they may have been slight compared to someone else's sins, even though his sins may have been little sins compared to someone who maybe has some great and horrible sins, even though there may be some in the church that he could look at and say, well, they're not very inconsistent inconsistent in what they believe. In fact, the same apostle Paul had to withstand Peter to the face and tell Peter, you're wrong, you're being a hypocrite. 
But his moral superiority didn't stop him from doing what he needs to do. All of us who preach, and perhaps many of us who are Christians, I've heard people say, well, I don't want to be a part of the Lord's church. There's just too many hypocrites in the church. Well, I always tell them, well, there's room for one more. Apostle Paul understood that. The Apostle Paul understood that he can't let his moral superiority keep him from doing what needed to be done. So as we read here in the text, even though it says that he was blameless as far as touching the law, he understood and appreciated he needed to give that moral superiority up and understand and appreciate that he was just a sinner and needed of a Savior just like you and I are. The Apostle Paul, at one time in his life, asked the greatest question that a person can ask. We've already mentioned in Acts 22 and verse 10, he says, Lord, what will you have me to do? Uh, The same question was asked by the Philippian jailer there in Acts chapter 16 and verse 30. When he realized that he was lost, he asked Paul and Silas, he says, Sir, what will you have me to do to be saved? It's the same question uh, that was asked on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, beginning there at verse 36 when Peter said, uh, Therefore let all the house of Israel know as surely that this that God hath made the same Jesus, whom ye crucified, both Lord and Christ. And it says that they were pricked in their hearts, and the people there on the day of Pentecost says, What shall we do? What must we do to be saved? Well, the people on the day of Pentecost were told to repent and be baptized for the remission of their sins. The Philippian jailer was told to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and then Paul told him about the Lord Jesus Christ, and then in the same hour of the night, uh, the Philippian jailer was baptized. But when Ananias, the preacher, got to the Apostle Paul and answered his question, as we've already mentioned in Acts chapter, two, Acts chapter 22 and verse 16, he said, And now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized, and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. This morning we have talked about a man who gave up everything in order to be saved. The question you have to ask yourself this morning is, what do you need to give up in order to be saved? Is it maybe some family connections? Maybe it's some uh, religious connections? Maybe it's just simple moral superiority? Whatever those things are, we hope that you'll give them up Because Paul understood that his supreme goal in life was eternal life. And we hope that's your supreme goal also. There's a need we can help you with this morning. We want you to come as together we stand and sing.